hope the telephone transmission is going out well. We haven't had problems with that in a long time, and I know in many respects it's a lifeline to some of you out there who uh, want to know what's going on, and that way you can at least hear the sermons. Of course, they're on the Internet as well, but it means a lot to be dialed in directly. Uh, we have a new moon coming up again, I say this month, the month of August on man's calendar, but in God's calendar there aren't two new moons in any month. It's just that man's calendars are elongated by in some months. So this month we do have two new moons in August. So Sunday night, August 31st, at 7.30 we have a new moon Bible study as well as a town meeting. As I mentioned last week, I would like to get any thoughts and input in terms of feast planning uh, at that meeting. We'll set aside some time to talk about the feast and things you might like to do and, and uh, plans for food and that type of thing. We won't change the services and we won't change the days, but we can plan some things which God gives us opportunity on. Uh, some of you might have noticed as you came in, and you might not have since it's at the back wall. Uh, I made that announcement last week about the solar cooker that was in the was on the internet that we had a copy of, and uh, Al Terry made one this last week and quickly boiled water in it, I guess. So it does work. If it'll boil water, it'll cook broccoli and potatoes and meat too. So it's sitting back there if you want to have a look at it. Very, very simple and yet very, very effective. It's nice to see a working model of something rather than just trying to read the instructions when there's some assembly required. All right, let's get into it because if we don't, we will not finish. And we need to finish today. I don't know how much we'll finish, but we need to finish the sermon. So we'll get started on it. Last time we came down to Genesis 45 and verse 8. The thought that I had in mind as we concluded that was about Joseph's personality, uh, the type of character uh, and approach to life that he had. And he is our direct grandfather, many times removed, but... We're in his direct lineage uh, as Ephraim and Manasseh, the United States and Britain. And we should have inherited many of the characteristics the man had. And in fact, when we get down to reading the things that would befall the sons of Jacob, we find that the United States and Britain have had many of the same characteristics that our forefathers did. However, there has been a lot of mixture of races over the years. Uh, there have been a lot of different philosophies and cultures and societies and paganism that have entered in uh, in the centuries since that time. And our personalities have been warped. They've been changed. We have, even in our individual lives, gone through many, many different types of situations. Some of us had parents that knew nothing about parenthood. Some of us had parents that knew a little bit. Few of us had parents that knew a lot 
and they were a product of the culture and society that they had grown up in. And God began to call people out here in this end time through the voice primarily of Herbert Armstrong and to teach them a different way of living, a different way of thinking, a more godly way of doing that, how to live a life. And he showed that God wrote the Bible as an instruction book on how humans should operate. When you buy a new rototiller or a tool of some kind, it usually has instruction books or a book that tells you how to operate it and how to be careful with it. They try to cover themselves carefully these days because of product liability and lawsuits and can, can come as a result of somebody stabbing themselves or uh, sticking themselves or shocking themselves using that equipment. And indeed, human beings need a lot of qualification because we are prone to hurt ourselves in many, many ways, even though we don't think we're doing something that will hurt us often, we find later on in life that some of the things we did do come back to hurt us. So we need an instruction book on how to live, how to approach life, what our attitude should be, and God's Word gives us that. Uh, Proverbs comes to mind. There are many, many thoughts in the book of Proverbs to show us how to approach various situations. And they may not be the way that we naturally do or were taught to or saw the example around us as we grew up. But we're in a process of conversion. Conversion means change. You convert water into steam by applying heat and it changes form. And God has set up things to apply heat to us to cause us to change and not to be the way we were anymore. Now, one of the biggest challenges to that is getting us to admit that we might not be everything we ought to be because we are what we are and we like to be satisfied with ourselves. It is uncomfortable to be dissatisfied with ourselves. It's easy to be dissatisfied with others, is it not? But we like to be dissatisfied, I mean, satisfied with ourselves. Now, because of background and so on, sometimes we have another problem, and that is that we can never, it seems, be satisfied at all because we have a very low view of ourselves in a wrong or detrimental negative way. Now, we should all be lowly, we should all be humble and meek, but that does not mean we should feel worthless at the same time. None of us are worthless. All of us have a great deal of worth to God. He created us. He set in motion the process whereby we would be born in His image as His children, and each of us, to him, is very, very precious. We all have a great deal of worth because he ultimately intends that every one of us be a part of his kingdom and have life forever under absolutely peaceful, wonderful conditions. 
with no fears, no threats, no worries. That is what he intended for mankind, and still does intend. And even though mankind has gotten way off track, and is right at the position God is ready to almost destroy man from the face of the earth, even as he did in the days of Noah, this time he will reduce the population somewhere between 90 and 100 percent. Not 100 percent, but somewhere above 90 percent. And it's for the purpose of ultimately saving us. All Israel shall be saved, Romans 11. And most of the Gentiles. So he has a plan whereby he is going to put great heat and pressure to get mankind to see that they're not all right. That everything isn't fine. That they have to change. That they have to have a different attitude and a whole new approach to life. Now, he's doing that with us because he tells us in Romans 12:1 that we are to be transformed. A transformation is a complete change, like they do makeovers on houses. It could be an old, ugly, dilapidated thing, and they come in and do a transformation, a complete do-over. And God says through Paul and other places, that we were of the world, we were like the world, we thought like the world, and now he says, be you transformed or converted. Don't be like you have been. That's why we examine ourselves, not only at Passover, but daily, to see how much still needs to be changed, what needs to be transformed in our approach to God, to life, and to other people. It is so easy for us to fall into human reactions rather than godlike reactions. It is not natural for human beings to love their enemies and those which despitefully misuse them and abuse them. Not natural at all. It's natural to fight back. It's natural to try to hurt back. Vengeance is natural. Talking them down is natural and normal to a human being. It just simply is not God's way of thinking. He doesn't think that way. And even if he does mete out punishment and vengeance at times, and he does say that it is his, it is not ours, he does it out of love. He does it that they might ultimately be saved. Now, he tells the church not to be always nice, not always to be gentle, but to cry aloud and spare not and tell people their sins because we do not normally come to comprehend and see our sins unless they are pointed out to us. Now, we need to gently lead. We need to carefully take care of in that sense and not put people down and hurt their feelings to the point they can't operate. They can't grow. You know, you, you pour manure on plants to make them grow. Thankfully, plants, I guess, don't have noses, or they'd think they were being mistreated. To those who apply the manure, us, it stinks. But a plant grows from it. Now, to speak soft and easy things doesn't smell bad to us at all. 
fact, that sounds good. We like to hear that. But God says, especially right here at the end time, do not do that, but to cry aloud and spare not, because people are about to die because they are not willing to look at themselves and change. And the point I'm working at here is the same as I ended up with last week, and I think that it cannot be overstated or overemphasized. And that is that we need to have positive, upright, good outlooks on life and on each other. God is not a pessimist. God is an optimist. And he has figured out ways to convert and change human beings from the sad situation we find ourselves in today with deplorable character and personalities into godlike beings. He's going to use great heat and pressure on the world to the point of death and including death to humble them so that they can learn what they need to change. Now, he has called upon you and me to do this ahead of time without having to suffer death and dismemberment, or dismemberment and then death. He has called upon us to examine ourselves ahead of time and to see where we lack godly character and how we are not like him, and to begin the process of conversion and transformation so that we have the same reactions, the same way of thinking that he has. This is very, very difficult. And it is even more difficult when we are surrounded by a world that is a downer. It's very difficult to go the other direction. I'm only saying what Herbert Armstrong said in an analogy used. Any old fish can float downstream, but it takes a vigorous, strong one to swim upstream. He used that over and over and over again. We simply have to be different than what we have been and what our background and culture made us. It's easy to blame our parents and say, well, I'm this way because. Or blame society and culture, I'm this way because. Or blame ourselves for mistakes we may have made, I'm this way because. Okay, it's okay to say that. It's okay to understand the reality of what we are and why we are that way. And it's not a sin to see those things. However, it is a sin to stay that way. Whatever molded and made you what you became has to be overcome we have to grow above it and beyond it. We cannot be like we have been. I heard someone in the church some years ago say, well, God is just going to have to accept me like I am. There's a Protestant song that says almost the same thing. Just as I am, Lord, or however it goes, take me just as I am. He don't want you like you am. He wants us to be different. 
He wants us to change. He wants us to grow. And it is not without great wisdom that he sent us back to study Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and to understand their personalities, to understand what they went through, to understand what they became, and the dedication and conviction they had in their beliefs toward God, and even the personalities that they possessed. And we saw that Joseph was very upbeat, very positive. He was an optimistic type personality. And he made those around him feel better rather than worse. He lifted up people around him. Now, if you're a pessimist, you'll go around speaking negative, talking about the bad, and trying to see how bad things are, and you'll dwell on that stuff. That is ungodly. God is not that way. He looks for the good in you and me, thankfully, and he is willing to overlook the bad to forgive. And he sent his only begotten son to shed his blood in a very painful way that we might be forgiven. And you can't get any more optimistic than that. I'll send my very own only son down. I'll put him through 33 and a half years of having to live an absolutely perfect life and then he will die so that you might be forgiven your sins and have life eternal. What an outstanding view of optimism and love he had. And how optimistic must he have been to be willing to send his son who said, yes, Dad, I'll go. Wasn't Dad at that time, but he became the son when he was born here on this earth. I'll go. We're going to save these people from themselves. That was their point. He's called us and he's given us a comforter, a strengthener, his Holy Spirit to call on so that we might walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. The flesh bites, tears, chews, picks at, backstabs, and is negative. The Spirit is uplifting, positive, giving, serving, and helpful. It's the way Joseph was, so that even people in prison had their entire viewpoint changed as a result of his influence. Pharaoh's whole court, the Egyptian way of doing things, was changed because of the way Joseph operated and his outlook and how he looked at things. You know, as a slave, having been sold into Egypt, you would think someone would have a chip on their shoulder. What if your brothers and sisters had sold you down on the Texas border to the Mexicans, let's say? Not to be racist, but they're close there. Sold you into a different country. And they had made you work hard and had treated you with disrespect. Wouldn't you have gotten a chip on your shoulder, most likely? Wouldn't you have probably hated Mexicans because of the way they had treated you, what they'd done to you as your masters? Probably you would. So you'd be down on Mexicans. Or if they just sold you to the Chinese, you'd be down on Chinese or whatever. 
and probably you would have had a very negative attitude toward life. Joseph's own brothers sold him. He became a slave. And yet through all that, he was always looking up, positive. And he wasn't backbiting the prison warden when he was in prison. He wasn't backbiting uh, Potiphar. He wasn't backbiting Pharaoh. Do you think if he had had those attitudes and had been a downer and was always talking negative, that he would have impressed the prison warden? I rather doubt it. If he had been down-talking Pharaoh, do you think he would have been promoted in Pharaoh's court? I doubt it. Or in Potiphar's house, where he was a slave and came to rule the whole house. He did not backbite his master. He did not backbite the other servants. He was positive. And over a period of time, being around Joseph, they responded so positively to him that they changed their approach, and it was so obvious to Potiphar, <laughs> to the prison warden, and later to Pharaoh, that this man had a positive, uplifting effect upon people. So much so that their whole attitude, the morale of the servants, the morale of the prisoners, the morale of the servants of Pharaoh was lifted up by Joseph's presence. The morale was made so much better and they could see the connection so clearly that in each case he was promoted. What an incredible personality that man must have been that he could lift up even jaded, hard-nosed criminals and cause them to be responsive. See why I don't think this can be overstated or overemphasized? That's the way God wants us to be. He wants us to be transformed. You know, we can go to the scriptures and we can point out some very strong ones about backbiting and gossiping and this and that and the other thing and jump all over you. And that is done at times and I've done it at times and sometimes it's needed. On the other hand, to go back here and study the life of Joseph and see the effect he had perhaps is more effective than all the screaming we might do. But here was a man who could lift up those around him. Wouldn't it be nice to be known that way? When you're around so-and-so, you always go away feeling better, feeling stronger, feeling picked up. Not, you always leave that person feeling, oh man, because they were down about so-and-so, down about something else. Woe is me, life is terrible, then you die. We have lousy leadership. We don't have blessings from God. We don't have... When you're around people that talk that way, don't you feel worse? Does your faith, is your faith increased? Do you feel more loved? Do you feel like going out and serving and giving? No, you just feel good. Maybe there's a check for us. When people have been around you, how do you think they feel 
when they leave. Would that we could all be like Joseph. And you know what? We can be. We have to go to God, be filled with his spirit, ask him for it, then go out and put it into effect so that you can literally transform and change your personality. Now, if you're going to be a king and a priest and a bride of Christ in the world tomorrow, there to lead and guide and make people grow and change and be what they ought to be, then don't you have to become that yourself? You cannot impart that which you do not have. Now, some of us, by nature, tend to be a little more positive and see the good side of things. You know, the old glass half empty and the glass half full things. Some of us always see the bad side of it. But those who see the bad side will try to say, well, I'm a realist. I see how bad it is. Now, that's just the justification for being negative. We need to come to see the glass at least half full and expect that it will be filled to the brim with blessings overflowing. That's where we need to be. Now, God, through Isaiah and others, gives us a beautiful picture of the way things will be, even in this age, before it ends, for those who will obey God. An uplifting picture, an inspiring picture, something that gives us, let's say we have a glass with so much in it, it gives us a picture of a glass plumb full and ro rolling and running over. That's what the scriptures give us for the obedience. Now that is what God wants us to focus on. Not the things that we don't have, but the things we do have. Now maybe we don't have, in some respects, physical blessings running over like someday we expect, but I think we do have spiritual blessings and knowledge and understanding running over already. God has showed us things in those prophecies and in Isaiah that he is going to do that should be so encouraging and full of hope and excitement that we would be transforming ourselves to be absolutely sure we can be part of it and not be weeded out as rebels somewhere along the way when God purges the rebels from among us. <coughs> because he says he will. He wants each and every one of us here and on the phone and whoever will see the tapes to respond and to grow, to change, to overcome. Now, we may not be like Joseph today, but we need to get there. People say, well, you can't change your whole personality. Yes, you can. It is not normal. It is not human. But we can overcome the world. Christ did. The world around him was full of backbiting, stabbing, greedy, miserable, wretched people who were ungodly in every way. And he did not become that. He resisted it and overcame it did not give in to it.
Now, we do not need to be enablers either, and I think I mentioned this, but I want to put it out as well. We need to make people around us feel better, to make them feel uplifted, to come away feeling like, yes, if we do what's right, we're going to be blessed. And we already have a lot of blessings. <coughs> Maybe we don't have springs in the desert physically around us yet, but God gave us a piece of land with water on it, and he brought us out here ahead of time, and we're not going to be trapped in those cities with no food and water the way a lot of people are. So it is an absolute, incredible, utter blessing to be out here in this desert. And as this thing draws closer, it's going to be more apparent that it's a blessing. Now, we probably, all of us have crabbed once in a while about, oh, there's a desert out here and it's too hot and there's not enough rain and blah, 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 and woe is me, and it was greener where I came from or whatever it was where you came from. But you've got to consider what's coming. You have to consider that God brought us to a desolate desert wilderness area where we will be away from what is coming in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago and Miami and some of these other places. It's not coming here in the same way at all. And by obeying God, he is going to make sure we are taken care of if he accounts us worthy. And we should be praying about that. So we have much to do to count our blessings. And we should be counting our blessings not what we might consider our curses. Because dwelling on the negative and what around us is not good at this point only brings us down and brings those around us down when they hear us talk about it. Oh, woe is me, I have a cactus in the yard. My chickens lost their feathers. Well, whatever, I don't care. Yeah, sure, we have to see things and fix things, yes. But I mean... Just in this negative attitude is no good. It is simply ungodly. Now we have a responsibility to lift those up around us. We also have a responsibility not to enable those who would be that way. And there is one of the hard things that we have to face. And that is when somebody is crabby and negative and backbiting and putting down the ministry and putting down us and putting down our neighbors, we have the absolute responsibility to tell them that they need to change the subject and be uplifting or we're leaving and then get up and leave if they don't. That is our responsibility before God, for iron to sharpen iron. Don't let them get away with it. If they want to go sit in a corner and cry in their beer, if they have any, then let them do it alone. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be compassionate and listen to people's troubles and the trials that they may, may be facing. But there's a difference between showing love and compassion and giving solace and comfort and in listening to a gripe session. There's a huge difference there. If somebody has personal troubles with finances, with 
help with their children, with their attitude, or whatever it is that they're fighting. And they want to confide in us their needs and how they need help to overcome, and would you pray for me and help me? We can show great depth of emotion and compassion for that. But if they're just kicked off or have their nose out of joint because of the leadership or each other or their neighbor or whatever, we don't need to listen to that garbage. And we'd better not. And all of us have, including me. And I haven't always been like Joseph. Sometimes I get griping about this or that or the other thing. Well, stop it. Change it. Overcome it. And we owe it to one another to help each other change it and overcome it and not listen to it. We have the responsibility to be like our father Joseph to pick people up around us, to make them feel better, to make them feel stronger, to make them feel courageous, to make them get over their fears and walk in faith. Listening to them gripe doesn't help them. Encouraging them to be strong and faithful and courageous does help them. Now, if you listen to the downers, all it does is keep them in a discouraged frame of mind and it makes them feel like they have someone to commiserate with. When they're griping and complaining and backbiting, brethren, they are not confiding in you. Confiding does not mean that. They are griping and bitching is what they're doing. That is not confiding. Confiding means taking you into confidence with some of their troubles and their difficulties and seeking compassion and mercy and forgiveness and encouragement and strength. That's what confiding is. But a gripe session is not confiding. Let's understand the definition of the word. Confiding means sharing your feelings, your hurts, your needs, and getting help and strength. That's what confiding is for. Griping and complaining is not confiding. Yeah, you're telling them what you think. And that may be, in some respects, reality. But no, how do you deal with reality? Maybe everything in life isn't good. Maybe everything around you isn't good. Was it always good around Joseph? No, it was not. Now, had he been, as we might term it, a realist, he would have recognized everything's bad, and he would have had his outlook on life as bad. The reality was he was in a pit. The reality was he was accused of something he did not do and went to prison, and so on and so forth. That was reality. But he saw God's hand in his life, and he overcame the reality that was around him. And he made a new reality. He took a very bad morale situation in prison where they were down, discouraged, frustrated, rebellious, 
uncooperative, and created a new reality. A reality of prisoners who could see hope or light at the end of the tunnel. He encouraged them in such a way that they looked to him and responded to him, and the warden said, you're in charge. You're doing a good job of picking these people up. Actually, and this is unusual with prisons, he was rehabilitating those people. Now, they put you in prison these days, and they say, well, we're putting in you to rehabilitate you. No, you learn your craft better. You learn better techniques of robbing and killing and stealing better. You learn techniques of homosexuality and bestiality and all kinds of things better. Every evil, rotten thing on earth you learn to do and to do better in prison. <coughs> that is the reality of the modern prison system. And it was the reality of the Egyptian prison system, I'll bet anything. Well, not anything. It's the expression. But he changed the reality. Now the reality is, you may be old and sick and tired and frustrated... You may be poor, you may be this, you may be that. But can you look to God in hope and faith and lack of fear about any and everything? Is God our healer? Is God our creator? Is he the one who can bless us? He said he will as soon as we turn to him with our whole heart. And you know how he determines that? By how we react one to another. He says, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you treat each other. You cannot separate how you treat people with how you separate God. He says, if you treat them bad, you've done it to me. If you treat them good, you've done it to me. That's the way it is. We would like to think we can separate it. We can have all this love in our heart for God, but all this malice and backbiting and ill feeling and ill will toward others as human beings created in the image of God, and you cannot do it by God's own work. He said, the attitude you have toward people is the same attitude you've got toward me. So if you're negative toward people and things around you, then you are negative to God. Can that be made any more clear? They have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Did they think they'd rejected God? No. They thought they were rejecting Samuel. And God said, no. They reject you. They rejected me. You're not a good priest, Samuel. You don't do things right. We don't handle things right. They were rejecting God. We need to understand. We need to get rid of our negative approach to life and to people. We need to be like our father Joseph. Feeling better?
maybe not. We can't always feel real good about everything, can we? But the, the challenge is, is when we feel bad and we feel down, is to find a way to feel right and good and have a relationship with God and man right. That's what we have to do. We have to overcome it. We have to change it. And that gives all of us work to do. I'm beginning to understand more and more why God says at the end that there would come a time we needed to be pointed back to our fathers. Our father in heaven, our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore to honor our, even our own physical fathers. When you study these guys back here in Genesis, it gives you a deeper understanding of what we need to do. I'd always read that at the end of Malachi and thought, well, that's right, we need, you know, well, we, we had a very uh, shallow understanding of it in Worldwide really years ago. We thought that we had to have YOU programs and YES programs to make the fathers and children feel touchy-feely with each other. That was basically our approach and the depth of our understanding of that scripture. That's as far as it went. <clears throat> but God had something far deeper in meaning. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our physical fathers who obeyed Him that He worked through to produce us, and then thirdly, honor for our human fathers that we have on this earth today. Now what if you, as a 60, 70 year old person, your dad's already dead? And someone comes along and tells you to turn your heart to your father. Well, kind of hard to do. He can't turn to me. He's dead. And I can't really turn to him. He's dead. But if you understand something bigger and much deeper here that is more encompassing, then you still have somewhere to go to turn your heart. When we read through God's Word, you may have noticed, you'll read a little bit, and boy, he'll be all over you, won't he? I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you if you don't straighten out, kind of a thing. You'll read a couple, three, four, five chapters of that, and then it'll turn around. And then it'll say, but if you will obey me, I will bless you and your cup will run over and everything will be wonderful with you. So he kicks us and then he picks us up. He kicks us and he picks us up. That's the way the Bible is written. Now how did he treat Joseph and his life? He kicked him into a hole and picked him up. He kicked him into prison, and a little later he picked him up. That's the way he worked with him. Now, Jacob must have thought his life was a weariness at times, too, you know? His wives fought. <laughs> they were jealous, bitter, greedy, envious of one another, envious and jealous and greedy of each other's children, and the children fought among themselves. And then his wife died, Rachel, the one he loved. By the time he came down to Egypt, three of his wives were dead. And his children were fighting over who got the most attention, jealous and envious. 
And then when they did sell Joseph, they told the dad, is this his coat? And brought great sorrow to him. He thought he was dead. And then when they went down to Egypt to get stuff, he thought Benjamin was going to die. So to him, life might have seemed like, man, it's a downer. But Jacob had faith in God. And God, even though he put him through a lot to teach him what he needed to learn, he encouraged him when it was over. He brought him through it. The man passed the trials. He changed. He grew. He overcame. And he received God's blessing. So you can see in Jacob's, Joseph's life, the ups and downs, and yet you can see where God let them be tried and then how he blessed them when they passed the trial. So that's the way God works with us. And as we go through the Bible, there are going to be sections that we go through where it'll be really tough. And there'll be other sections where we're really encouraged and strengthened and given hope. You know, it's hard to deal with human beings, isn't it? If you give them blessing all the time, then they forget you. If you give them cursing all the time, they give up and quit. So God has to work it where he's up and down with us. He tries us, he tests us, he blesses us. He tries us, he tests us, he blesses us. Uh-oh, he tries us, he tests us, we fail, we're cursed. Then we go through repentance. Then he blesses us. It's like parents who give their children good all the time. Always giving them gifts and presents and doing everything they want and just making, spoiling them to death. You know what happens when you spoil your children? They get spoiled. You know what you do with spoiled meat when it gets spoiled? You can't stand it in the house, you throw it out. So we... If we had trouble in life, like the depression generation or whatever, well, I'm not going to let my kids go without. I went without. I didn't get everything I wanted. My children are going to have everything. So we give them everything, and then they despise us. We don't correct them. We don't, change. We, we don't want them to hate us. We don't want them to dislike us. So we won't correct them, and they wind up hating us, ultimately or despising us or disrespecting us and not doing what it is we hope they'll do. God says if you don't correct, chasten your children, you don't love them. You may feel emotion for them, but you don't love them in God's view. And you don't really love them or you would do what is best for them, and that is not always giving them what they want. Now, God always gave us what we wanted we would soon disrespect him. On the other hand, <coughs> if we never show favor or blessing or compliments or giving, then they despise us because we're mean and bad and ogres and so on. So there's a delicate line in there. And you see it in Scripture where God chastens us. And he says he chastens every son whom he loves. And if he doesn't chasten him, he isn't loved. So there's a critical and fine line between 
loving in a right way and hating and despising and not treating them right. We have to find that balance. The ministry has to find that balance. Thankfully, God wrote the whole Bible for us, and in it, we find the balance. We find the stepping on your feet, and we find the encouragement and the strength and the blessing that he promises to give for obedience. So we get correction and we get hope. We get commandment keeping, and yet we get faith and love. There's a balance in this book that God has planned and designed in there, and it would well behoove us as parents and as neighbors and friends and brothers and sisters to find the same balance that God gives. When there's wrongdoing, then there has to be penalty. When there's right doing, then there has to be a pat on the back and thankfulness and so on. It all has to be there. If we read the Bible a lot, we see how God does it, maybe it'll help us learn how to do it. You think? I think so. That's, the way, that's why he designed it as an instruction book for us. Now, he spends a lot of chapters in here with the story of Joseph, doesn't he? With the, in, the details of it. And I think I'm beginning to understand more and more as I read through it why. Because you see how God worked with the person. Maybe he was spoiled by his father. And God saw that his personality was not completely balanced. So he put him through a severe trial with his, with his brothers. Maybe the little spoiled boy learned something in that pit and as he went in to became a slave. But he had that kind of a spirit about him that he was able to rise above whatever conditions he found himself in. Well, maybe I am overemphasizing. I don't know. So let's get on with the story here. <clears throat> I'll pick it up again in chapter 45. Uh, we left off at 8. I'll go back to 6. Well, let's go back to 5, where he said he's Joseph, and he says, Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. He said, You've done wrong. You haven't been what you ought to have been. You sinned greatly against me, and you certainly sinned greatly against our father Jacob. He's explaining some things here about their guilt, and they had been living under guilt all this time. And they saw their father going about life in a mourning fashion and unhappy and frustrated. And they had a lot of guilt. Now, God had allowed that guilt upon them. He had allowed the frustration and the pain on Jacob. But now Joseph is saying, don't be angry with yourselves. Get over your guilt. Get over your frustration. Get over your past. Isn't that what he's saying? Don't victimize yourself. Get over it. Don't beat yourself up about the way things have been in the past. Mistakes you have made. Some people will beat themselves up until they're 87 and one-half years of age over something they did when they were 14. When we commit our lives, brethren, to God, 
and vow before him at baptism to go his way, everything in our past is wiped away. God said he removes it. He forgets it. We're supposed to do the same thing if we're going to be godly, aren't we? It doesn't mean that we forget the lessons we may have learned. It may not mean that we need to forget how to do things right and not ever do those things that we did wrong again. But we should not wallow in self-pity and woe is me over what is in our past. Everybody has a past, good, bad, or ugly. Not too much of it has been good with human beings. But God says, don't remember the past, move forward. Learn the lessons, but don't wallow in pity and guilt. And that's exactly the approach that Joseph took with his brothers. Don't be grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that you sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. God had a purpose in using your human nature against you. Yes, you sinned, but God had a purpose. Sometimes God allows us to do things that are hurtful to ourselves and to others because he has a plan to retrieve us in the long run. That doesn't mean we all need to go out and be as bad as we can be so that there can be more forgiveness. You know, Paul addressed that. He said, don't go out and sin just so grace can abound <laughs> because you hurt yourself and you hurt others in so doing. But whatever has transpired, whatever mistakes have been made, don't beat yourself up. God has a plan and a purpose in each one of us. And he drug us out of the gutter wherever he found us cleaned us up through the blood of our Savior, and now he wants us to move forward in confidence and faith and true belief that we can be a part of his kingdom someday and transform ourselves by the Spirit of God, not continue being the way we are. If you're one of those that's beat yourself up and it helps you repent to go back over your problems and your sins, you need to get over it. Don't wallow in self-pity. Move beyond it. Go forward. Living in the past does you no good. Whether you're a sinner, whether you're a widow or widower, whether you're a divorcee, whether you're a, an orphan, whether you got fired, whether you were in prison, whether you killed somebody, it doesn't matter. You don't live in the past. You move forward. We're preparing ourselves to marry our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel. And wallowing in the past does not accomplish that. He does not want to marry somebody who says, Well, I've been bad all my life and I'm still bad. No, you shouldn't have been bad. But don't stay bad. Overcome, change, grow, move forward. Don't live in the past. If only doesn't cut it. Change it. God has promised us great blessings. 
And we'll see here that God brought great blessings to Jacob and the sons. He turned around that which was bad and made it into something good. God can do that. We can do the same thing. We can turn this which was bad, this which is human, around and make it good character, to make it godly, to have the same approach, the same desire, the same way of thinking that God has. Upbeat. God doesn't see you anymore as a sinner. God does not look upon you if you are within his grace, his favor, as a result of changing your life and your sins being washed away. He doesn't look upon you as a sinner. Now, you still look upon yourself as a sinner, I hope, and I hope that our prayer always is, God be merciful to me, a sinner, because we do have many, many shortcomings. And we don't want to begin to look at ourselves as, oh God, you know, I'm so good, I know you just can't wait for me to be in your kingdom. We can't have that kind of ego and vanity. We have to recognize that we're far from that, and yet have great hope in his mercy and forgiveness and love. So we can't earn it, no matter how good we are. We're still going to fall short, and we need his mercy and forgiveness, don't we? That's what law and grace is all about. Keep the law, but when you fail, you receive unmerited pardon and forgiveness, the grace of God. But through his Son, we can have life eternal. So God sent me to preserve life. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now he tells us in Jeremiah and other places that the deliverance he is going to bring at this end time is going to be greater than Egypt and the Red Sea. Now that is what we'll come to here pretty quickly. So they go down into Egypt, they spend 400 years there, and then they're delivered with a tremendous deliverance. But God was working with them to make them a people, a nation. And they had to have their teeth cut on some pretty hard times and then be blessed beyond comprehension. And then they still griped and complained and wanted to be negative. Moses wasn't the kind of leader they ought to have. God wasn't the kind of God they ought to have. God wasn't blessing them the way they thought they ought to be blessed. God wasn't giving them water and food when they wanted it. You see the pattern of human nature over and over and over again. But he's going to give us a deliverance here at the end that will make that very forgettable. It will be so awesome. And he is preparing the people now to accomplish that. Just as he prepared Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph... Just as he prepared Moses and Aaron, just as he prepared John the Baptist, he is again doing the same thing. <clears throat> so this story is back here <clears throat> for those of us who should be preparing for the return of Christ to read and to learn from, because there is a great deliverance coming. We have opportunity to be part of it, and that's why we're in school today.
We're here to learn, to be ready to give and serve and help others be delivered. He sent Moses out in the wilderness for 40 years to teach him so that he could lead. And he is preparing people right now to, to lead this end-time deliverance. I think that this little group he has brought out here to help prepare the way. I think that's what we're here for. And if we're here to prepare a place for others to come and be blessed, then we should be so thankful, so happy, so joyful to have this opportunity that we wouldn't be down and upset and complaining and griping about anything around here. You see, we're focusing, if we're griping and complaining, we're focusing on the bad. And realistically, there is some bad, isn't there? There's some bad in me. There's some bad in you. There's some bad in cactus. There's some bad in too strong a sunlight. There's some bad in not enough rain. There's some bad in tomato bugs. There's some bad anywhere if you want to find it. But then we're not focusing on the right things. If reality, as you see it, is not very good, then make a new reality. That's the challenge. Make a new reality. And go to God to achieve a new reality. God sent me before you to preserve your posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me here. Now you may have sold me to the Midianites, but it wasn't you that sent me. It was God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house. He said, I even look after Pharaoh like a father would. He's a, he's a little child to me in some respects. And he was, wasn't he? Because God had given this man the ability to see what was coming, the feast and then the famine, and for Pharaoh to have the perspective of understanding that Joseph ought to be the one in charge of it. So he was providing for Pharaoh just like a father would for children. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So you may have thought bad toward me, but God had something else in mind. And, you know, God even used Satan, the devil, to work with Job. Now, there's nothing good about Satan, is there? Nothing. He's rebellious, negative, down, all the way around. And yet God used Satan's attitude, Satan's approach to life. Satan was backbiting, he was negative, he was down, he was always looking for problems with authority, he hated Job, he put boils all over him, he tried to make Job like he was. So God used Satan's nasty mentality, attitude, personality, and attitude to bring about good. 
So whatever sins and whatever amount we have bought into Satan's system and into his attitude and negative approach to life <clears throat> that we've imbibed of, God can turn it around if we will be transformed and make it good. The end of Job was far better than the beginning of Job. Oh boy, he allowed Satan the devil to put him through it for a while, didn't he? God is able to make lemonade out of lemons. Doesn't mean that the lemons were good, but God could transform it, and God can transform you and me. We have to go to it. God did this. Haste you, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, tarry not. Sometimes, to fulfill God's purposes and will, we have to absolutely change everything in our lives. Jacob was happy there in Canaan, as happy as he could be with the troubles he had gone through in life. He certainly didn't want to move to Egypt. And yet God had a purpose in him being there. And he caused Joseph to see that purpose. And he said, I'm Joseph. I'm in charge of all Egypt now, and you need to be here. Pick up your tent, pick up your cattle, pick up everything you have, and beat it on down to Egypt. There's a change coming for you, old man. He was about 120, I think, when this happened. That's not the age you want to just uproot everything in life and change everything and change the country you're living in and the people you're around. We don't like that. We like the status quo. God says go out in the desert and the wilderness and the mountains. We don't want to go. <clears throat> so he urged him. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There will I nourish you, for yet there are five years of famine, lest you and your household and all that have that you have come to poverty. Now God's going to do that again. He tells people that they're going to have to leave where they are and go out in the wilderness and the desert and there... He will save them, according to Micah 4 and other scriptures. He tells us to gather ourselves and leave the cities and go dwell in the wilderness. Is that appealing? I heard one man one time say, I don't want to get that far from Home Depot or Office Depot. I don't want to get that far from the restaurants I like to go to. He likes the city. He likes being able to jump in the car and be two minutes or four minutes away from all the glittering things that are coming in from China. <clears throat> People don't want to move away from China Mart. They want to be able to go to Walmart. Well, we have one within 45 miles here, so even if we're in the desert, we can still run to Walmart. And I'm not criticizing us, we need to go to Walmart. But there's going to come a time when Walmart, St. George, is not there anymore. It'll all be gone. Thought I was out of tape already, I guess I'm not. 
There comes a time when this nation is going to give up all these things. All God is asking you and me to do is to get away from it, disconnect from it as much as we possibly can ahead of time. Because the disconnect is coming with everybody pretty soon now. And they simply will not even be there anymore. If we have not achieved independence under God, we will die. He'll nourish you and take care of you. Isn't that what God tells us? If we'll obey him, he'll nourish us and take care of us. If we'll leave this world, depart from Babylon, he will nourish and take care of us. He's not asking us to do anything he didn't ask Jacob to do, is he? Behold, your eyes shall see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You're going to see it really is me, Joseph. <clears throat> and you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you've seen, and you shall haste and bring down my father here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brethren talked with him. They finally realized this really is Joseph. Now let's talk. So they communicated and exchanged stories about what had happened to them and what had happened to their father and, and what Joseph recounted the things that had happened to him since he had been sold. They caught each other up, in other words. <clears throat> and the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come, and it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. Pharaoh said to Joseph, because Joseph was just truly a favorite of Pharaoh and the servants. He was such a magnetic, outgoing, uplifting personality that they were so pleased when Jake, Joseph was blessed to have his brothers come. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, This do you. Load your beasts and go. Get you to the land of Canaan. And bring your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. He was so happy with Joseph, he figured, boy, if they're all like this guy, I want them here. <laughs> Bring them on. <clears throat> I wish, I hope, that someday God is able to say that of us. These people have become so positive, so loving, so giving, so sharing, so happy in counting the blessings they do have that I can't help but give them more and their brethren, their sisters around the world are going to see that they have come to live in the light of my face and I have blessed them and they're all going to want to come and be there with them. Wouldn't it be great to come to the point where God would inspire people around the world and say, look at those people. You ought to go there and be with them. All right. Man, I want to be with them. <clears throat> That's the way they were with Joseph. I think we have a way to go. There are very, very few people right now that want to be with us. Mostly because of what we believe, not because of what we are. But we need to become that which draws them. We need to be so peaceful, so loving, 
so undivided, all on the same page, so there's no division among us, as Paul says is our goal. So the people could see, those people are close, they're united, they love each other, they serve each other, they don't backbite and hurt one another. I want to be with them, I want to be like them. I don't think you could have a greater testimonial than that, if we could become that. I can't wait to be around those people. I can hardly wait to see them. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do as we do. We kid one another. Sometimes we badger each other and give each other, as we call it, crap, since we're lowlifes. We give each other a hard time, but hopefully it's always with love and tender feeling, not sarcasm, not meanness, not bitterness, not put down. I mean, we can kid each other in love and it can be uplifting. Humor is a very wonderful tool. It can also be, if it's mean and sarcastic, it can be a great deterrent to love. So we need to be very, very careful of our attitudes and be sure that we're kidding in love and hope and encouragement rather than actual put-down. And I think it's pretty, pretty easy to tell the difference, isn't it? If somebody kids you, uh, you know, well, we're all different. Some people you couldn't offend them if you tried, and some people you didn't even try and they got offended anyway. Some people are thin-skinned that way. So you have to be careful. We have to be able to have wisdom and control and know who we can kid and who we can't and how much we can and how much we can't. And some people, you can kid them almost mercilessly and they take it in the right attitude and you have fun and everybody knows we're all having fun here. And others, maybe you didn't even mean it that way and boy, they get offended and hurt and they got their feelings on their sleeves. Well, we need to be careful, and yet on the other hand, people need to get over some of those feelings they wear on their sleeves too, so that we can have the camaraderie. You know, brothers and sisters tease each other, but it doesn't have to be mean teasing. It can be loving teasing. And as I've often said, I won't kid you, I won't tease you, unless I like you. You know, if it's somebody you don't care for and you don't like, it's just too much trouble to come up with a joke or a, or a, a saying or a, a kidding them. You know, who cares? <clears throat> I don't like them anyway. Why should I try to be nice to them? Or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Have the camaraderie and the teasing and so on back and forth. On the other hand, if you don't like them and it's just a sarcastic, nasty teasing, uh, then that will be determined as well. Humor is one of the hardest things there is for us to control and to use right. It is one of the most difficult things to use right. But God is full of humor. But his is a happy, um, sometimes kidding humor that will uplift rather than put down and make us feel bad and 
we have to learn to use it right and then we have to learn when to use it and when not to use it because some people are offended so very easily. You've got to be careful with that. They'll take it wrong. You might not have meant it wrong, but they'll take it wrong. And if they take it wrong, then things don't go too well. <clears throat> ah, we have to learn. It's hard. It's just hard. Anyway, things were happy here now. You're commanded this, do you? Take you wagons out of the land of Egypt, verse 19, for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Also, regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. <laughs> Remember Isaiah 55, where God says, Come, eat and drink without money. God is going to provide freely to his people when they come. But we have to be willing. I'm going to thumb back here for a moment to Luke 14. And here I want verse 33. Luke 14, verse 33. Did I write down the wrong one? No, I'm in 14. I wrote something down wrong here, I guess. Only got 31 verses. Anyway, it says that we have to forsake all that we have and come and follow him. Forsake all that you have. Be willing to give it all up. No, God may not require everything of you, but he may. And he says you have to be willing to give up any and everything. And that's basically what Pharaoh is saying here. Leave your land, leave your home, Come down here, don't worry about your stuff. It'll all be taken care of. I will take care of you. God promises us the same thing. Um, Matthew 19, I think it is, is one that we quote fairly often. Matthew 19, verse 29. And everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or land, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. We have to be willing to give up any and everything, whatever it is, to follow Christ and to do what he wants done. That is the challenge. I told Jacob, give it all up, get on down here. The children of Israel did so. They just did it. Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh and gave them provision for the way. <clears throat> to all of them he gave each man changes of raiment, but Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. He was his favorite brother, and he gave him more. Now, was that wrong? Did that prolong and make the jealousy even worse? You spend more time with him than you do with me. You do this, you do that. That's your favorite. You know, every one of us here and every human being on earth likes some people better than others. You have some those that you have an affinity for, some that you share more things in common with, 
some that you enjoy visiting with and talking to, and others that it, you don't maybe dislike them, it just doesn't do much for you. And we have to guard against that even with our children. Sometimes if they have a, an upright attitude and a responsive attitude, uh, it's easier to like them than it is one that's rebellious and nasty and down. It's just easier to get along with them and to like them better because of their personality. And even Christ himself among his disciples had one that he loved more than the others. He had an affinity for and a personality more like John, or John did more like him, than the others had. So he was more his friend than the others were. When it came time for someone to be in charge of the church, he chose Peter rather than John, because John had some more had more of the leadership capacities, perhaps, than John had. But as far as personality, he had more of an affinity for John. <clears throat> so when they sat around the campfire or whatever, John would sit next to him, leaned on him at times. It wasn't a queer situation like the world sometimes would tell you to justify being weird. Our society has said that men don't touch each other much. But in a lot of societies around the world, men kiss each other on the cheeks and give each other big hugs. They kiss each other on both cheeks, in fact, when they see each other. And that's essentially repulsive to most American men. That's not the culture we grew up with. If we'd grown up with it, it would be natural to us. And they had more of that kind of culture back in Christ's day. And men could show feeling and emotion for each other without it being uh, wrong, the wrong kind of emotion. True friendship, deep friendship, and emotion that could be there. <clears throat> Maybe we don't have enough of that, but then we see the perverted, and we certainly don't want to go there. So maybe it's harder for us. But at any rate, he did have a favoritism toward Benjamin. And maybe by this time, the brothers had learned to deal with that. I don't know. But they were being blessed, and he just simply gave Benjamin more. And it's not wrong for us to have some people, some friends, that we enjoy more and like to be around more than others. It is not wrong. Now, we have to be careful because we can get into cliques. Uh, most of you call it cliques. It can be spelled, I mean, it can be pronounced either way according to the dictionary. Cliques is first, I believe. But you get into these things where you only associate with these three or four families, and that's all. It's not wrong to be close to some, and others should not get jealous of that. But do not do it to the exclusion of others. You might spend more time with some you have a commonness, commonality with, but be sure you also spread it around to others. Don't invite the same people all the time. Be around them more if you want, but be sure the others are all included. That is the loving way to go about it. So what God would have us to do. When people come to the feast sometimes, we are used to having each other around and we know each other better and it might be with your friends you want to go to dinner or 
It's easy to leave the others out because you don't know them as well and because of our own timidness and so on and it's hard to make friends and it's hard to talk to people you don't know and all the little nuances of human nature and personality, it's easy for us to go with that which we are most comfortable. But we're supposed to reach out. And if others come that we haven't spent time with, we need to make it a point to be sure and spend time with them because they are coming from outside. And I remember how it was when I was a kid out in West Texas and we'd go to the feast at Big Sandy. You had those who lived there who went to Imperial School and they would spend time with each other and you were looked upon with disdain, looked down upon, were not allowed inside and they would speak to you and then they'd go do their thing with their friends. You were not brought in. You were not made a part of things. And sometimes you felt lonely. So what some of us did was we'd find others who were from Arkansas or New York or Oregon or something and we would try to make friends with them because they were also outsiders. So the outsiders made friends with other outsiders and then the inside crowd just stayed with themselves. Now was it wrong for those who were who lived there and were in that sense on the inside to spend some time with each other? No. But they should have included the rest of us. Maybe the rest of us wouldn't be so warped and twisted today if they'd have been nice to us when we were little. That was a joke. No, we're not going to live in self-pity over it, but I'm saying the way things ought to be. Ah, oh, that we could live up to the way things ought to be. It is so hard, is it not? It is so hard to be what we need to be. But we have to keep working at it. Anyway, going on, he showed special favor to Benjamin, verse 23, and to his father he sent after this manner ten asses loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten she-asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father, by the way. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you fall not out by the way. Have a safe trip. Be careful. Don't have problems. We do the same thing when people take off in cars and airplanes. You know, be safe. Have a good trip. It's funny. It's like, I'm not the one flying the plane, but I guess I will. <laughs> you know. But it's just good wishes that we have. We, we want everybody to be safe. So it's out of our hands, but still be safe. In other words, I love you. I want to see you again. Don't die in a plane crash on me. Okay, I'll try not to. If you're driving, it's a little different. It's a little more in your hands. Uh, be careful. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan to Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. Tell me another one. Sure, right. Yeah, Joseph is alive after all these years. Sure, he is, and he's ruling Egypt. <coughs> well, you've been smoking. They told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. He was encouraged. He began to believe it now. And Israel said, it is enough. All right, I believe you. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. 
Well, I'm almost to time to quit here, so let's just stop right there. Uh, Jacob finally sees some light at the end of the tunnel and says, Man, maybe, maybe things are going to get better in life after all. I'm going to go see my son before I die. I bet he really felt good after all those years of mourning and frustration to really actually believe his son was still alive. So we'll leave on a very positive note there.